0: Hello and welcome to Mid-Coast Morning, CHLY's weekly current affairs show. I'm Joe Pugh, here's what we're following this week. In case you haven't heard, there was a federal election this past Monday. I had a conversation with Dr. Alexander Netherton, professor of political science at BIU, about what he makes of the campaign, as well as the state of Canadian democracy. Also on the election, the BC Union of Indian Chiefs, Say that the campaign took the focus away from indigenous issues in Canada. President Stuart Phillip spoke with me about some of those issues, why they haven't been resolved, and how we can work towards changing that. Plus, a group of hotel workers were protesting outside the Coast Bastion last night in Nanaimo. Stephanie Fung, communications organizer for Unite Here Local 40, explained why. And finally, Nanaimo has a new animal responsibility bylaw. Sheila Gurry, Director of Legislative Services with the City of Nanaimo, explains some of the changes in our city when it comes to keeping cats and dogs. We begin, however, with the election. The Liberals are returning to power with another minority government, but we've likely seen a change locally in Nanaimo Ladysmith, with incumbent Paul Manley of the Green Party sitting in third place in a close three-way race. As of this recording, Friday afternoon, Lisa Marie Barron of the NDP holds a lead of about 1,000 votes, but has not been confirmed yet as the winner, with around 8,000 mail-in ballots to be counted today. To see what conclusions we can draw from the campaign overall, I spoke with Dr. Alexander Netherton, Professor of Political Science at VIU. (laughs) I'm really curious, first of all, as we start to talk about the election, how does a professor of political science look at elections?
1: Oh, I think the the sort of standard matrices. I mean, the the first question people look at is that has the distribution of power changed in terms of political parties? Okay, we're talking about election results, uh, and so we do those metrics and we look at. uh, we look at a uh, standard question in relationships of uh, popular vote to to representation to get an idea of institutional biases. Um, we look at the campaign platforms and programs to see how parties are shifting and what their strategies are. And um, we we look at candidates. Um, we look at at campaigns because uh, elections are, are huge periods of uncertainty. You know, we don't know what's going to happen in an election campaign. Um, and, and this one, I think the government uh, came in thinking that high in the polls and thinking they would capitalize on that. And they came out basically with the same amount of power they had coming <laughs> at the beginning. So... Uh, there's those sort of standard questions. There's other questions people ask about um, how effective is this sort of short campaign? What sort of democratic consultation uh, is, can be can be made from that, and so forth. Um, and then uh, scholars will also look at, uh, of course, political parties and and, the, and their internal workings. Um, And we can look at this in the the long term and see, well, how does this really stand up to other elections and so forth? And and look at things like our party system or our kind of menu of choice uh, when we go to elections and, and ask questions about whether that is changing and so forth.
0: So there's a lot there that you touched upon. Are there any one or two or three? I mean, I'm sure there are several. Of those questions that stand out as particularly important to you in this election that we just witnessed,
1: yeah, I think a number of things. Too, Um, uh, I think that the short campaign was um, really uh, distinctive—the shortest term possible Uh, at the end of the summer, kind of unexpected Uh, by most of the public. I think the political parties in in a minority government are are always. have a plan B for an election. Um, so I think that uh, in such a short election and an awkward time, it, it's hard to um, get everyone involved that wouldn't normally be involved. So I think that there was certain resentment towards the election that lingered on through the election. So that was a, became a political issue in the election. The second thing um, to note, I think, is the, um, the other power didn't really change a great deal. One of the really important things is the from this election is the Conservative Party changed its platform really meaningfully in this campaign. So in the spring, as we all recall, the, the caucus was sort of almost denying climate change and coming into the election, Erin O'Toole had in it uh, a campaign and, and a platform in which um, they had a substantive climate change uh, policy it was a sort of minimum requirement to to fulfill Paris the uh, Paris agreement or Accords, but that is such a sea um, change for the conservatives so clearly um, the conservatives uh, would displace themselves in the sort of harborist and. Um, uh, in recent history and, and trying to reposition themselves as a more centrist party. Um, I think that was a really significant change. So that, although power didn't shift in parliament amongst the parties, the, uh, there is more of a chance for a common agenda to work things through and, and uh, get the climate change legislation and policy enacted and, and other things to, to do with that done. Um I think the second really interesting thing about observing this election is that the the agenda that that uh, the liberals had in, in calling the election really was lost by event. Um they wanted to, to have this notion about which parties can carry it forward and so forth. Um but it was kind of naive because people basically didn't look so much at the future plans as their, as they because they are in common, they looked at the record. And, and again, as in 2019, the prime minister became a personality, a character became a, an election issue. I think that was a bit of a ploy, but it, it did become an election issue, but certainly the, the liberal track record became a, uh, a major issue. And so I don't think that, um, I think they were kind of naive about going to an election before they really had something to to say that we did. <laughs> you could really demonstrate that. So that was a uh, kind of an interesting observation. Um, as we know, we we uh, are affected in minimal by that that conservative change that the fueling of relative. Uh, very tight race, an undecided race, where the uh, NDP had been working to reclaim um, uh, the seat in the Naimo, and the, the the Greens have been working very hard to retain it and the interesting thing in that competition is that um, the conservative candidate, relatively newcomer to the scheme is, is um, you know, in the preliminary results, but we don't have final results, was in second place. That's quite a sea change, and I think that's got to do with international political dynamics that kind of blew away from Aaron O'Toole and repositioning of the Conservative Party. And the the um, the press coverage of um, the Greens in the um in the campaign was interesting and the Press coverage centered on difficulties within the party and with the leader. The interesting thing, though, from the uh, preliminary results is that um, more people, it appears, by preliminary results, had voted for Greens in this election than the 2019 election. So that's kind of interesting, uh, the difference between kind of the, the party in the electorate and the party in the media. Uh, but clearly the, the Greens didn't have a sort of organizational or financial capacity to uh, to mount uh, a campaign. Um, uh, and is similar in nature to what they did in 2019.
0: Yeah, speaking to the local yeah. election results, obviously, as we're speaking, the final result here in Nanaimo Ladysmith isn't known. It will probably come out by the time this airs, so I'll make sure to update it if I can. Um, but we have Lisa Marie Barron of the NDP in the lead with about 29% of the vote. And like you mentioned, a very close race. The Conservatives at 27 and a half. The Green Party, Paul Manley, the incumbent, 24.7. And the Liberals with 13.4%. So really a very close three-way race uh, based on some of the the factors that you're just talking about. I just think that was important context to put out for anyone who um, might not be so familiar.
1: Yeah, well yeah, absolutely. Um and so the conservatives in two nineteen were about where the liberals are today instead of a distant a distant uh, floor. And uh, wow, you know, how things can change. So the blue tide lifted us up and there was no red tide and no green tide, so that left uh has left uh, uh Paul Manley in in, in a in where in, who who is typically a very good campaign or runs very good campaigns in a tough race. We don't know how that's going to end yet. There's a whole, there, there are an awful lot of, um, a, um, of a mail order ballots. of course, people who are dedicated to vote and they are not as sensitive to, to, um, a campaign effects. Um, the last count or last year is about 9,000 of those, um, of those uh, ballots to be sent in, and they could tip the balance of power between any of the three top candidates.
0: Doubling back down to the, the 2019 election, uh, the Conservative Party did actually have 26% of the vote, so as of right now, their vote share has only gone up um, by 1%. Back then, the Greens had 34.5, and um, the NDP were in third place with just 23 0.7% um, of the vote. So really, I think one thing that highlights is the nature of the first-past-the-post system and how the candidate who wins in Nanaimo Ladysmith when there's a close three-way race is only going to have percent, yeah. less than 30% of the voters voting for them, but they will effectively receive all of the power uh, for the riding. Given that Canada in the last 20 years has seen a string of minority governments for the large part, do you think there's going to be more talk about Electoral reform, or how do you think the voting system, the first past the post system, is serving Canadians?
1: In this case, I don't. Well, first of all, I I think that that there's, within the electorate, there's mixed feelings about changing it, and I think probably the the one of the interpretations in your first question that that Canadians may have the electorate, but to be proven by you know uh, public opinion studies and so forth. But you get the sense that. Um, it is very hard to to elect a majority government in this country, and so the, the electorate may be satisfied simply with minority governments, and that's an, that's an interesting statement in its own right. Um, the Conservatives had two minority governments, uh, preceded by one Liberal minority government, um, and this is the second minority government under Justin Trudeau. So, and and um, uh, so that's an interesting one there but your substantive question about about the relationship of popular vote to um, to representation um, these are indicative of, of really the difficulty we have so um, the liberals have slightly fewer votes than the um, than the conservatives uh, but they have uh, what 159 seats in the Conservatives, I have 119, so uh, that's about 40 seats. there are different, uh, uh, so that's a huge um, that's a huge lift. Uh, our system of, of uh, voting is meant to reward the victor, to you know, and, and it's really about forming strong governments. But the price of that is underrepresentation for for parties that have. Um, let's say, a broad support across the country, but they're not regionally concentrated. So let's look at that difference. The Parti Québécois pulled 7.7% of the national vote, but it has 33 seats in House of Commons. The NDP polled uh, just under 18% of the popular vote. That's uh, about 1% percentage above the last election and it only gets 25 seats in the House of Commons. So that, that's, that's extraordinary. And the Greens, uh, which in this election, as I mentioned, for some reason, they look preliminary figures like they're at 822%. These are preliminary figures, of course, uh, and they only have two members of parliament. So the institutional effects and systemic effects are, are quite clear. That those parties which have a general um, support amongst the population, but are not uh, territorially or regionally concentrated, they simply do not get expression within the uh, national parliament, the federal parliament. And so that is the that is the I think the the basic issue that 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 drives people or, or is incentive for people to look at at other forms of representation there have been a series of referendums in canada on uh, forms of, um, of proportional representation and for various reasons they just haven't passed um, so one of the One of the ways around that is, you know, we can select one system and so forth and go with it. They all have their issues. Um, And the other is we can go less in uh, Germany or other countries and have a mixed system. You could say have two thirds of our our representatives elected and in this form we have. And I guess it's, it's, Strengths are the sort of community control and accountability, and people don't want to toss that away. And 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 have uh, one third of the members, you know, on then go again by a form of proportional representation. There are also some mixes we can do to to get around this, but but basically, um, this is a, this is. A, Extraordinary dynamics where you can you can get seven less than eight percent of the the uh, regional vote and thirty uh, three uh, percent thirty three seats in the House of Commons and and get eighteen less than just like eighteen percent and only get twenty five around eight percent and only get two so you know these are extraordinary dynamics. Is there a, the political
0: well, will to, to change them though?
1: Um it, it there doesn't seem to be at this point. Um although the Prime Minister did mention going out. Uh well that's a whole story. But the Prime Minister did mention in a press interview on election night that he'd be willing to re, to revisit it. The the uh the Liberals did promise in two fifteen to to the, the two fifteen election would be the last on um, the first past the vote or, or simple plurality system. And uh, they established a committee and and so forth and a task force. And it kinda went nowhere. Um, one of the issues is there was an agreement in the House of Commons on what form of uh, proportional representation or alternative voting there would be. So um, there are various forms. That one is uh, involves in ranking um, ranking candidates and 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 uh, and to kind of to to force the kind of uh, a representation. And in that uh, alternative vote system the the research kind of end, indicates that in the end it kind of serves existing parties. Because let's say, Joe, so you, you can rank candidates and you, you rank them in a series, but at the end of the day, you might come back to your first choice or, or the standard choices. And, so that's what occurs. And uh, as the second, um, there's, there's forms of proportional representation. Uh, and generally the public is not really conversed with what these systems are or um, in how they worked and what the possibilities would be. Uh, We've had altogether three referendums in in British Columbia on alternative systems that didn't pass through. Ontario's had one from the East Coast. Um, Even in the UK, they had a national referendum with the 2011 election. So electorates are by themselves hesitant And so, in the case of Canada, with Justin Trudeau, the opposition, and this was in the early years of his um, prime ministership, the opposition conservatives said, okay, whatever you select, this should go to a national referendum. And uh, I just don't think at that time that Justin Trudeau was interested in fighting that battle. And, uh, the, hmm. Joe, the, the real issue here that to deal with is political parties themselves will only support electoral systems which they see is to, are to their advantage. So it's pretty hard to see major parties that are profiting by a system or that benefit from it to say, oops, I think I'm going to get a new system. So there has to be something exceptional going on. And um, the what's occurring now is that the major political parties are not pushing it. The only party that's really pushing something uh, in the two parties that really pushed it in the past are the Greens and From time to time, the NDP. And uh, the Liberals uh, walked away from it after 215. And the Conservatives are not fans, even though it's costing them some votes, seats. They're not fans. I think Canadians themselves are suspicious of of recently concentrated power. Uh, and um, the, but it's it's used very effectively. So I don't know if I'm helping you there, but...
0: <laughs> no, certainly. Uh, given all we've talked about, I'm wondering what's your opinion on the strength or the state of Canadian democracy today after the election?
1: Oh, okay, good question. Um, I think, uh, and I'm just guessing here because I can't speak for all Canadians and don't have... So <laughs> I'm I'm just guessing like you, okay? <laughs> uh, I think that the the shortness of the campaign and, and the ability to 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 sort of really inability to really engage in a certain sense, um, I think that's damaging to to democracy. Um, I don't think the pandemic is an issue to to um to avoid democracy. Um, and uh, at this point, we, we all know how to social distance and, and these things can be well set up. So I don't think the pandemic is the issue and I don't think it can be used for an excuse not to have an election. And I don't think uh, that um, it's, it's a bad thing to have an election, but elections should have a purpose. And it was hard on this election to really figure out what was the purpose of the election. And I think that was played up in in the campaign by opposition parties and so forth. Uh, so I think that is worrisome. Um, on the other hand, as a student of politics, and I look at this election, I think the very fact that the the conservative party has kind of, you know, changed its it, uh, its tune on some really key issues, uh, kind of. Gives me hope that that um, this upcoming parliament could be pretty effective uh, for a minority government, and that might, you know, that might change people's minds and think, well, this, this was a good exercise in the whole. Um, the other thing to note is that there's a whole series of minority governments. though so those people who would think they would like have a strong government to get something done and so forth. The fact of the matter is that that's just not in the daily the, the wick at the moment. And the last thing uh, to say on that, I think, is that um, this notion about the equality of our votes and um, uh, changing the electoral system, uh, to me, is, this, this case is continually made by these elections. And uh, like a lot of people, I'm, I'm just surprised that we can't find a way out of it there are so many ways to go around this and it's, it's just very it's just very interesting that we
0: can dr alex netherton professor of political science at vancouver island university on what we can take away from the election results you're listening to midcoast morning on chly Still with the election, this week, the BC Union of Indian Chiefs put out a release saying that the campaign sidelined Indigenous issues and reaped minimal change. I discussed the issue with Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, president of the BC Union of Indian Chiefs. We've just come through an election campaign. I'm wondering if you could share with me your thoughts on how Indigenous issues were approached in that campaign.
2: Well, I think uh, Indigenous issues were pretty much ignored. Um, um, throughout the, uh, recent, uh, federal election, there was, uh, a lot of lip service paid in regard to the need for reconciliation and, and greater supports for indigenous communities, but there were no clear commitments or promises of, um, investments in uh, housing, healthcare, education, and um, support for uh, emergency management facilities and equipment and infrastructure. So it was very disappointing.
0: Why do you think it is that Indigenous issues took a backseat on the campaign trail?
2: Well, it's um, very obvious. Out of 338 federal ridings in Canada, there was only uh, 77 self-identified Indigenous peoples that actually ran um, as a candidate in in those particular ridings. And in my view, until such time as we have a bare minimum of 338 Indigenous candidates Running across his country in federal elections, or if you consider um, three candidates per riding representing the liberals, conservatives, and NDP, which elevates the number to a thousand indigenous candidates who um, will represent our views and our needs in the House of Commons, we're going to see this uh, a uh, very colonial, very arrogant dismissal of our uh, rights, interest, and
0: concerns. One of the longstanding issues affecting a number of Indigenous communities that was at least mentioned in attack ads during the election campaign is um, the lack of clean drinking water. I'm wondering, in your opinion, how this continues to be an issue that's gone unresolved?
2: Well, it's, it's simple. Um, uh, we're not a priority. Uh, indigenous people have never been a priority within the Canadian parliamentary system um, as a direct consequence of our underrepresentation. And um, the other issue, of course, is our people do not fully engage in the electoral process. We need to become uh, very, very political and understand that federal elections are an opportunity to elect our own representatives to sit in the House of Commons and give expression to the critical needs in our community, such as the fundamental human right of uh, clean drinking water.
0: And in the press release, your organization released this week, Uh, You mentioned reconciliation was brought to the attention of the national media earlier this summer with the discovery of unmarked remains across the country at former residential school sites. Um, But it disappeared during the election campaign, the the notion of reconciliation. Next week, the country is going to mark the first observation of the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation as a, a federal statutory holiday. I'm wondering, what do you hope comes out of that day?
2: Well, I I, um, I think it's an opportunity uh, much akin to Remembrance Day on November the 11th. The um, the the uh, principle of that is lest we forget. I think the residential school issue in this country needs to be elevated to to that level so that we have um, a similar. Uh, principles such as never again, and that um, communities, municipalities, institutions, education um, are compelled to recognize that uh, National Day of Reconciliation and begin to uh, develop a a greater, more in-depth understanding of the brutal history of colonization in this country as it relates to indigenous peoples.
0: In your view, what needs to happen for reconciliation to move forward in Canada in a meaningful way?
2: Um, I think there needs to be a um, uh, substantive investment uh, made uh, in regard to housing, community infrastructure, um, you know domestic water systems, Community facilities, emergency management uh, centers that are permanent, that are not simply pop up tents that are removed after wildfire season. Those kinds of serious investments that will help us to establish um, highly functional communities with um, schools. in elementary schools, high schools, training centers that will uh, lead to elevating our local economies and providing long-term uh, permanent sustainable employment opportunities. It'll provide education and training. We need mental health services desperately in terms of uh, treatment centers and healing centers and. And the professional personnel to populate those new, um, the establishment of that new infrastructure in our communities.
0: What role do you think non-Indigenous people can play in maybe helping to get some of the investment you're just talking about?
2: Well, I think it, you know, it it takes, um, you know, uh, they got to get rid of their... Uh, racist attitudes that they've held close to their hearts for the last 150 years. Uh, Canada is a very, very racist country. It's deeply steeped in its colonial history based on racial superiority of the colonizers. And it's proven to be incredibly counterproductive, very destructive, and has, uh, you know, brought about um, um, physical assaults on people of color on the streets of our cities. And that's absolutely unacceptable in this day and age.
0: And is there anything else you think people should know about any of the topics we've been discussing today?
2: The only thing I want to leave our listeners with is we need to know and understand Uh, Truly, we're in this together, and as it was in the beginning of First Contact, we need to know and understand once again that our survival, our very survival depends on our ability to come together and establish uh, economic interdependence relationships and begin to respect each other and know that it's only together we'll get through these
0: crises. Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, President of the BC Union of Indian Chiefs, on the treatment of Indigenous issues in the federal election campaign. You're listening to Midcoast Morning on CHLY. Last night in Nanaimo, a group of workers protested in front of the Coast Bastion Hotel, claiming that the outfit is using the COVID-19 pandemic as an excuse to eliminate benefits and jobs for its workers. To find out more, I spoke to Stephanie Fung, communications organizer for Unite Here Local 40, the union that represents hotel workers in B.C. This interview was recorded Friday morning before the protest. As we get started, I'm wondering if you can tell me uh, some of the background behind why this protest is going to take place.
3: Right, so today um, at 5.30 p.m., Coast Bastion hotel workers will be demonstrating outside their hotel to demand that the Coast Bastion stop using the COVID-19 pandemic as an excuse to destroy good jobs and roll back everything that the workers have worked so hard for. So just to give a bit of background, before the pandemic, um, Coast Bastion hotel workers who are represented by Unite Here Local 40, the Hospitality Workers Union, you know, were earning very good wages. They had um, union health care. Um, they had housekeeping protections, you know, workload protections to make sure that they weren't overdoing it. Um, they had benefits. Um, they had. They basically had just had job security and, and severance and all of that. But all of that went down the drain when the pandemic hit. Um, the coast bastion is trying to take advantage of the pandemic and use that as a way to roll back all these hard-won economic gains that these long-term workers have worked so hard for over the years. You know, these are um, workers who are mostly women who have worked at this hotel for decades. And they've just built up all these this good job security and the seniority, and they don't want to lose any of that just because of the uh-huh. health crisis.
0: So I reached out to Coast Hotels, uh, and they said they cannot participate in an interview uh, due to ongoing negotiations with your union, um, they're in active bargaining with you, and that they feel the place to resolve these issues is at the bargaining table. I'm wondering, why do you feel like this is something that should be taken to the public right now?
3: We, we feel that this is something that should be taken out into the public to show, to, to let the community know that what the Coast Bastion doing isn't right. You know, um, we have been seeing other employers across BC um, commit to bringing workers back to their jobs and, you know, protecting hotel workers' jobs, but the Coast Bastion isn't doing that. But the Coast Bastion is, uh, as I said before, they're using the pandemic as an excuse to eliminate hard-won gains that their staff have won over the years. And that's not acceptable. And workers, um, yes, they are in bargaining right now, but um, the hotel has, hasn't refused, has refused to, you know, do the right thing and protect workers during this time. And workers feel strongly that they need to protest.
0: Is there any way of uh, verifying the hotel's claim that it's still suffering financially due to the pandemic?
3: Well, I think that would be a question to ask the co Bastion.
0: Fair. And I'm wondering what kinds of legislative protections, if there are any legislative protections uh, for the workers you're negotiating on behalf of. So is there anything, I don't know, within... Um, I'm not a, an expert in labour laws here in British Columbia. Um, I'm wondering... On behalf of these workers, are there any protections? Should there be any protections within the provincial laws, uh, the labor laws, to protect them from a situation like the one that they're in now?
3: Definitely. um, You know, uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, um, our union has been pushing the government to step in and um, ensure that employers are doing the right thing and extending recall rights um, for the workers during this, um, unprecedented, um, times. Um, but I think what's, um, specific for Coast Bastion is, is, you know, the message that they're, they're basically, um, trying to profit from the pandemic. It's not just, um, you, you know, they fired almost 50 workers, um, in December, but not only that, but they're trying to, um, you know, flash and burn the contract, the current contract. And they're trying to get rid of everything workers have worked so hard for. So increasing workloads, cutting back on daily room cleaning, um, they're they're really doing their best to eliminate good jobs that um, the workers have have worked so hard for.
0: Is there anything else you feel like people should know about the protest uh, that's going on or just the state of hotel workers right now in the province?
3: Yeah, so recently over a 1,000 B.C. hospitality workers won unlimited recall rights and protections for union health care and pension, um, and that was with hospitality industrial relations in a four-year agreement, and so the question is, if other hotels are doing this in B.C., why can't the Coast Bastion, why can't this hotel, um, you know, during a time of recovery commit to to protecting workers and ensuring that They have stable jobs. They have job security and that their benefits, um, you know, their their seniority, their all of that stays the same as it was pre-COVID and their workloads don't increase because at this time, the Coast Bastion is leaving workers behind.
0: Are you able to comment on how the negotiations have been going so far and are you optimistic on an end result?
3: Um, I can't comment too specifically on the negotiations, as I'm not directly a part of those discussions but um i can definitely say that you know workers are there um they're a part of those discussions and they're determined to um keep fighting and doing whatever it takes until you know they have job security and they're and they feel safe and they're um doing manageable workloads on while they're on on their on their job
0: stephanie fung Communications organizer for Unite Here Local 40, explaining a protest by hotel workers in front of the Coast Bastion Hotel in Nanaimo. I reached out to Coast Hotels on the subject and received a statement saying that they cannot participate in an interview due to ongoing negotiations. It went on to say that Coast Hotels is in active bargaining with Unite Here Local 40, meeting, exchanging proposals, and making a sincere attempt to reach an agreement, and they will continue to keep bargaining at the bargaining table the industry, and the hotel continue to be severely negatively impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic, and that the only place to resolve those issues is at the bargaining table. You're listening to Midcoast Morning on CHLY. This week, Nanaimo passed a new animal responsibility bylaw, updating a number of details relating to pet ownership in the city. Among the measures included are that all cats over the age of six months must be spayed or neutered and have sufficient identification. Cats also may not trespass on private property without the owner's consent. It's a bylaw that generated a lot of debate in the public sphere with heated comment sections on social media sites as it made its way through council over the past year. To learn more about what changes pet owners can expect, I spoke with Sheila Gurry, Director of Legislative Services with the City of Nanaimo. Can you tell me a bit about this new animal bylaw and some of the differences from the old one?
4: Um, Yeah, so much of the focus from the public has been surrounding um, the cat provisions that are outlined in this bylaw. But really this bylaw is truly um, to emphasize the importance of animal safety and responsible pet ownership. So it is referred to as the Nanaimo um, Animal Responsibility Bylaw. Some of the changes in this bylaw have been removing references to restricted dogs since it's no longer best practice, changing vicious dog to aggressive dog um, as a description in the um, contents of the bylaw, modernizing sections to reflect current best practices of standards of care, implementing mandatory identification for cats, requiring mandatory serialization for outdoor cats, and prohibiting cats from running at large in a public place or another person's property without their permission. So not banning cats from being outdoors, just having responsible cat ownership for um, cats that do go outdoors as well as indoors. So those are some of the highlights of the changes.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned off the top of that answer that a lot of the discussion in the public sphere has been about the cat portions yes. of this bylaw. You also just mentioned at the end there that this bylaw doesn't mean cats aren't allowed to be outdoors. So what will owning an outdoor cat look like in Nanaimo going forward with the new bylaw?
4: Well, I think the um, the main, like I said, responsibility aspect of this bylaw is um, that we love cats. We just want to deal with the problem cats that are the feral cats, the stray cats, the cat population that um, sometimes, it, depending on who you speak to, um, can become out of control because of not spaying or neutering your animal. So some of the the problem issues um, and best practices have been to ensure spaying or neutering of your pets. So as long as that is done and your cats aren't causing a nuisance in the neighborhood, they can remain outside. So it's just asking owners to... To take that responsibility um, and, and it's for the good of cats. People love their cats and like I'm sure they do and so um, we don't want cats that are feral or not cared for or causing nuisances in um, other people's properties or um, in their in their yards per se when, um, when it's unnecessary. It could be prevented if people took those proper measures and to begin with.
0: So what will it look like if someone has a complaint about a cat? What What will they do and what will happen?
4: Yes, yeah, so our uh, complaint would go into our animal control center or the city, and the city would transfer it over to our animal control provider. Um, we would not um, go out and address every single complaint. It would have to be... Um, um, a legitimate complaint, not, I just saw a cat walking down the road. It would have to be, there was a cat in my yard. um, It won't leave. It's causing a nuisance or, you know, going to the washroom in my yard. And, um, the animal control officer would possibly go and, and investigate that based on the legitimacy of the complaint and they won't be actively driving around and forcing or looking for cats wandering around so it would be only complaint based and the complaints would have to be legitimate if there was a legitimate complaint and they were able to um, to determine who the owner of the cat was because that's not always going to be the case um then they would speak with the owner um to talk with them about um trying to keep the cat off of that property or if the cat isn't properly identified saying, you know, you are required to have your cat properly identified, Um, spaying or neutering is required. And there is a a policy that accompanies the bylaw and it is the animal responsibility promise to return policy. So for a whole year after this bylaw is in effect, in fact until January 2023, um, cats will be um, returned to um, any owner um, subject to the cat being sterilized and having identification with no, um, with no impound fees and or um, the seizure and impound fees will be waived until that date so they will be returned regardless with no fees um, until January 1st 2023 to allow for a time to educate owners that, that the need is to um, keep your cats away from problem areas if they' if they're causing a problem in the in the neighborhood.
0: Okay, so if I understand it right, if there's a complaint about a cat um, and the city deems it to be valid, uh, someone from animal control will come and check the situation out and try and talk to the owner first. Or
4: yes, yes, most definitely. They're they're always looking for um, for a not like a compliance first. It's always compliance before um, before ticket violation that sort of thing. So definitely always looking for an understanding and um, education.
0: And are there any other elements of this bylaw you uh, you'd like to highlight, or you feel like maybe you'd like to clarify?
4: Um, just again, like I said off the start of this um, this conversation, that. Truly, a lot of focus has been on the cats. Um, That might have been the biggest change, but there are some key modernization um, elements to this bylaw, like the restricted dogs, um, not breed specific legislation any longer, and really just truly emphasizing the importance of animal safety and the responsibility of pet ownership. We all love our pets, and we just want to do our part in ensuring we're helping with the care of those pets to prevent some of the. some of the misfortunate um, situations out there, such as the overpopulation of cats or the feral cat population, for, for example.
0: Can you just uh, elaborate further on the restricted dog um, changes you mentioned? Is that just uh, clarifying some of the language or you mentioned something about breeds? Yeah.
4: So the language was very... Um, um, Complicated and it was breed specific legislation where um, language, where it was um, around pit bulls or um, any um, type of crossbreed that was a Staffordshire bull terrier, um, American bull terrier, any type of a pit bull type breed or mix that contained such in it. Well, best practices and under the review have shown that it's it's not necessarily the breed, but it's the animal. Um, so we have removed the restricted breed language, um, as well as it was really hard to determine um, without blood tests and DNA tests on dogs if they truly were one of those mixed parts breeds. So it was really... Um, it, it um, was hard to prove, and um, from a like an enforcement standpoint, and not fair to breeds' um, best practices. So now it is just an aggressive dog, period. So if your dog has an incident of ag- aggressiveness, biting that sort of thing, it would be deemed aggressive rather than just immediately deemed aggressive because of the type of dog it is. Does I that see. Make sense?
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense. So. Previous in Nanaimo, there were certain breeds of dogs that were banned, but that is no longer the case.
4: Not so much banned, but they were restricted in the sense that they couldn't be um, out of the house with a muzzle, um, couldn't go to dog parks, couldn't um, participate in normal dog activities in life because of the type of breed they were. So we didn't have a ban on them, but we had a restricted breed um, language that, that put restrictions on that breed.
0: And anything else you'd like to highlight just one more time before Um, we go?
4: No, I just, um, if there's anybody that has any questions or misunderstanding, we do have an awesome brochure that we've created that has some fast facts and some... Um, information about um, what to do if you have questions or who you can turn to for advice um, on different aspects of of pet ownership and we're always happy to answer any questions and we're thankful for the positive feedback and understanding of the not so positive (laughs) feedback that we've received but we are um, happy to try to explain Um, if anybody has any questions please feel free to call us at the city of Nanaimo.
0: All right. Sheila Guri, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with me on this. Thank you so much. Sheila Guri, Director of Legislative Services with the City of Nanaimo on the city's newly adopted Animal Responsibility Bylaw. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Joe Pugh, host and producer of Midcoast Morning. Our theme music is Good Company from Nanaimo band a Venice. You can help support Midcoast Morning as a project of CHLY's news department, by making a donation at chly.ca slash donate. Have a story you'd like us to cover? Email us at news at chly.ca. We leave you today with a new single from Nanaimo singer-songwriter Elise Boulanger called In the Garden. For everyone at CHLY, thanks again for listening.